Part Two, Chapter Two of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker. Part Two, Chapter Two. His going to the State University had been settled upon unexpectedly. That he would go to college was taken for granted by himself, by his parents, and by the town. He was a smart boy. Nob, who had worked a year in the factory with his father, after graduation from high school, was going to a small Methodist college upstate. The Grays thought it would be nice for Kurt to go with him, and so it was decided. Then, in July, an old friend of Elmer's, a successful lawyer in Chicago, driving through Barton to his fishing camp in the north, had stopped off for the night. He liked Kurt's quietness and deference, and because this man was friendly, and didn't slap him on the back or pinch his arms to test his muscle, or thump him on the chest, Kurt liked him. The whole evening Elmer and Mr. Hansen talked of their law school days, and of half-forgotten friends and dimly remembered episodes, which acquired new glamour from their long immurement in memory. Kurt saw his father that night in a new way, saw him for the first and only time as a man who had once been young. Hansen had slight use for the small college and its piddling professors, and some enthusiasm for his alma mater, and so before bedtime it was decided that Kurt go to the university. Going away was not easy. The idea of entering the university appealed to him, the independence of it was a gesture of sorts but he had never been away from home to speak of before, and the hundred-mile journey seemed a great adventure. And it was harder for his parents than for him. They feared for his loneliness overtly, but in their hearts, most of all, for their own. He was very close to crying when he left, very close to crying all the way to his destination, and very close to crying when he emerged from the train into the dingy station noisy with shouting students and welcoming friends, meeting rushes, and making a great stir about it all. The room the taxi took him to was one his mother had arranged for with its proprietress, who had been, years back, the wife of a minister in Barton. That was, of course, sufficient recommendation. But it did not prevent Kurt, when he was safely in, with the door shut tightly behind him, from crying and then he felt better. Mrs. Meacham was an austere woman, although her rotundity belied it. She kept his room clean, but took a prying interest in his affairs which annoyed him. They were innocent enough, to be sure. He passed through the bugbear of enrollment, acclimated himself a bit to campus ways, attended freshman mass meetings, joined the Methodist Church, went to a social there to welcome new students and found its friendliness a little bumptious and embarrassing, its jollity a little alarming, studied conscientiously, and, oftener than a young man should, went to sleep on a pillow wet with tears. The Graylings were his salvation. Chloe Grayling sat next to him in French class. The instructor arranged the seating alphabetically, and Mr. Gray, Miss Grayling, soon became to Kurt an oasis amidst the Clapers and Horths and Jezuskis. It seemed a formula for agreeable comradeship. 
She spoke to him the first day. If he came early to class, she was always sitting in a window in the corridor's end, waiting for the preceding class to be dismissed, and they would talk of lessons of classmates, and, after a few weeks, of themselves. Kurt had never had a girl. The gang had been the gang. There were matches and spooners, to be sure, but Mrs. Gray thought it all extremely silly. He had never learned to dance, for dancing, at the age most young people learn it, had been taboo among the Barton Methodists, and anyway he had never wanted to especially. Nor had he wanted to go with a girl, like so many of the other fellows he knew. Kurt walked home with Chloe Grayling one noon. She seemed such a good sort, not boy-crazy, Mrs. Gray's epithet for the girl type she most deplored. He met Mrs. Grayling, a tall, angular woman, with gray eyes and heavy iron-gray hair that seemed always too loosely fastened. He was invited to lunch. Derry came in from high school, and all three sat in the small living room, a little abashed and uncertain, until the piano gave Kurt an unwanted bravado, and the ice was broken. Mrs. Meacham's piano, where he roomed, shone with newness, but she kept it rigorously locked, and when he was aching to play it she was asleep or busy or not to be disturbed or grudgingly reluctant. And finally, she said, she had mislaid the key. So it had all come about quite simply. With the second semester he had left Mrs. Meacham, not without difficulty, and established himself with the Graylings as Derry's roommate. He was not certain he would like the arrangement, much as he liked Derry, but anything was preferable to staying on with Mrs. Meacham. His parents had approved the change after much eloquent reasoning on Kurt's part, so that worry was removed. He had never lived so intimately with anyone, however, and at first it was hard to accustom himself to a more social way of life. He had been maidenly in his modesty, using the clothes closet as dressing room. He had debated with himself at length over the spiritual necessity of kneeling at one's bedside at night to make one's prayer efficacious, and, deciding that it must be done, had knelt, with fear in his heart, of Derry's probable jesting. But Derry, unpredictable Derry, had been impressed and had said nothing. He too seemed a little afraid of Kurt at times, conscious of a seriousness in him that was beyond his own comprehension. On the whole, the two got along unusually well, and by the end of his freshman year, Kurt had been taken on as an accepted adjunct in the goings and comings of the Graylings. His presence at Sunday dinner, at the occasional party that Chloe or Derry would give, at family outings and picnics, was taken as much for granted as Derry's own. He liked it. In the evenings both Derry and his sister studied, and Mrs. Grayling read, or crocheted interminable yards of edging for pillow slips and towels her long face dark, almost sullenly intent, in the glare of the overhead light she always insisted upon using. The friends he made on the campus were accepted by the Graylings as well, and their friends by him. So the change from Barton to Ann Arbor had been, after all, less revolutionary than it had promised to be. The whole environment of his extra-domestic life, to be sure, had changed. But otherwise, he had simply substituted a new family for an old one. 
there was still a home in which he was free to do as he chose, a piano to play when he liked, all the quiet certitude of family that he had always known. Mrs. Grayling had been difficult at times. Beneath her somewhat masculine exterior, her stoicism, he gradually discovered an emotional intensity that surprised him. She was passionately jealous of the affection of her children, worried over them incessantly, was often querulous and fault-finding and difficult to please, and could, on occasion, lose herself in storms of anger or hurt self-pity, which all of them dreaded. Yet normally she was agreeable enough, and to Kurt she took an immediate fancy. In him she confided, embarrassingly sometimes, because in him she felt, young as he was, a balance and a sanity which was her unconscious lack. The spring in this first new year away from home had brought to Kurt a third frightening experience, yet one mixed with a new and unholy joy. Mrs. Grayling had been unwontedly peevish, and Derry, as usual at such times, had gone into a sulk. He had come into the room where Kurt was reading, thrown himself across the bed with a sigh that seemed to say, Be sorry for me, if you dare, sullenly refusing to answer Kurt's question, What's the matter, Derry? and had gone promptly to sleep. Mrs. Grayling, weeping volubly, had shut herself in her room, and Chloe, exasperated by her mother's behavior, and her brother's, had gone to the library. Such scenes were disturbing, but Kurt was growing more accustomed to them, and somewhat reconciled, for he knew that another day would see everything set to rights again. Derry wakened late in the afternoon, and at Kurt's suggestion had gone to supper with him at the cafeteria, and then to an early evening movie. They had come out into a night full of warm moonlight, and walked without talking much, after Derry's initial, what do you say we walk a ways? Out of town, beyond the last almost defeated gleam of streetlight, and sat down on a hillside. They had been quiet at first. Then something in the white silence of the May moon had melted down the reticence their eighteen years of living had built up. Talk, slowly undertaken, had drifted, little by little, to forbidden things, to exchanges of confidences, and, at last, to the thing Kurt had fought so stoutly for the last four years, complicated now because shared with another. After it had happened, the joy of it turned to fear. Not to bodily fear this time, he knew better now, but to religious fear, a fear for his soul's damnation. It was enormous, his guilt, and its enormity grew upon him through the walk home and through the endless sleepless hours of the night. Unprecedented this act, and unmentionable. No one, he was sure, had ever been guilty of so heinous a sin. He seemed, as he thought confusedly about it, to stand alone, beyond possibility of forgiveness, blackened eternally. And he envied and marveled at Derry for the matter-of-fact way in which he took it. He should hate Derry, he knew. Yet he knew, too, that he did not. When a few nights later it happened again between them, he knew, 
although he stubbornly refused to accept the fact of his knowledge, that he was caught in a new snare, inextricably, a snare which he did not understand, and for the explanation of which he had no slightest intimation of where to go. He went home in June. His pleasure in being there, in seeing in the Barton Observer the item, Kurt Gray, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Elmer Gray, valedictorian of his class in the local high school last year, returned Tuesday from Ann Arbor, where he is at present Barton's only representative at the university, was shadowed by his consciousness of guilt, of his hypocrisy, and by his longing for dairy. At home it was so, and at church, where he was welcomed as a valuable addition to its somewhat anemic life. He played the organ. He talked at the Epworth League about the status of religion among university students. With all the time, the consciousness of his unfitness upon him, and the realization that all seemed much less important to him than it had a year past. Upon him, too, was the consciousness that his religious faith was much less sure than when he left. Freshman biology had taught him things about the origins of life against which he at first rebelled, but which in the end he was too clear-headed not to accept as true, or at least as more credible than anything he had hitherto learned. He wanted desperately, as he told Chloe so much later, to believe in something, always to believe in something. His attempt to adjust his knowledge to his faith, his mind to his heart, his thought to what he wanted to think, was in him a real and bitter struggle, and one from which he emerged slowly, clinging stubbornly, tenaciously, to the last tatters and remnants of a faith he knew was inadequate, because, as yet, he had found nothing to replace it. He had gone back to the university in the fall, back to the Graylings and to Derry, fearing that Derry might have forgotten, that Derry would not remember, for their relations had been unmentioned during their correspondence of the summer. They were both shy when they met, but both knew instinctively that the new relationship was to continue. It was implicit in their eyes, in the clasp of their hands. So, the years that followed had been years of joy unprecedented, and of shame, and remorse, and promised reformations, of miserable doubts, surpassing all those that had made up so large a part of his previous life. With Derry it was different. He was, to use Chloe's favorite and apt description, unpredictable. The moral question bothered him not at all. Two, there was in him an adventurousness that Kurt lacked. He accepted the strange liaison, as novel to him as to Kurt, as a thing physically delightful, nothing more. His feeling for Kurt changed little. He regarded him sometimes with envy, as one whose lessons were learned with little effort, and who had some sort of natural distinction that set him apart. But for the most part, he was simply an easily persuaded partner in whatever Kurt wanted to do. His was a strangely objective mind, willful, capable in the ordering of objects, in the manipulation of things, but utterly incapable of abstract thought. Kurt would try sometimes to read to him a poem he had especially liked, or to discuss with him some idea from his philosophy classes. But Derry would not understand, 
and seemed indeed to take a willful delight in not understanding. Swinburne had come to Kurt, at nineteen, as a revelation. The sonorous lines of Atalanta, that to him were of a beauty unguessed, shimmering, wonderful, were to Derry only tiresome and incomprehensible. In Kurt there was growing a feeling for Derry that he did not for a long time try to analyze or understand. He only knew that this mercurial person could cause him more delight and more misery than anyone he had ever known. Derry's state of feeling became almost an index of his own. Derry's unaccountable spells, when he would retire into himself behind walls as high and impregnable as those of a medieval town, and be sullen and silent, meant untold dismay for Kurt. Days when his timid advances were met with scornful silence or indifference tortured him. Rebuffed, he felt all the shame a woman feels when her lover is unyielding. Yet the idea that he was in love with Derry never occurred to him. It was so utterly beyond the range of all his experience, real or vicarious. A fellow fell in love with a girl. That was love, and all of love. His situation was, he never doubted, absolutely unique. Shame covered him, like the invisible cloak of his old fairy tales. So the years of college passed. Because of Derry and the Graylings, Kurt always remained, as a collegian, something of an outsider. He became known on the campus as a shy and talented young man. His interest in music had become stronger and stronger, until it became the dominating one of his life. His college patriotism found expression in composing a few college songs, which won him some attention and respect, even from the athletic set. Because he was so quiet, his reputation as a scholar exceeded his actual accomplishments. As he grew older, he still retained in multiplied measure the undefined quality of superiority. In his manner, unassuming as it was, people with whom he came in contact felt the aristocrat. It was his mother in him. He had become conscious of it gradually and fostered it half-consciously as a protective device. Into the small group of intellectuals the university could boast among its student body, those who wrote for the daily or the college magazines, he never fitted, but was always respected. His music reviews for the daily were written clearly and showed a sharp appreciation for the right things, but he never mingled much with the crowd that stayed around the editorial offices, so many of whom had less right to than he. He was an interesting fellow, it was agreed in the office, but not very social. To strangers they would sometimes say, that's Kurt Gray, as he went by the window, his slim body held stiffly as though for an expected shock, his hair brown and soft as his mother's, always a little too long, not from choice or for effect, but simply because he dreaded barber shops so much. And now it was over. There would be only commencement, a summer at home, which his parents demanded, and then east for a new plunge into music, another experience desired and dreaded. 
the last days would he was sure never be forgotten so pleasant were they examinations were finished a part of life was finished there was nothing to do but steep oneself in the june weather its mellowness seemed almost symbolic of the attachments he had made of the peace he was now feeling a peace pregnant with unguessed possibilities it was an unsure peace and in it he reveled while he might why was it that he so happy in his life with the graylings must tear himself out of their lives like an uprooted tree at times he was ready to throw everything over for it his career whose new call he knew in his heart could not be denied he was almost willing to surrender his last night in ann arbor brought him a surprise late in the evening he and chloe were sitting together in the swing on the porch it was a stifling summer night mrs grayling was dozing inside Derry had gone off somewhere in the car they had said little it seemed all to have been said the other afternoon on the hilltop and with that conversation in both their minds both were reluctant to begin again i've something i must tell you before i go kurt said chloe at last yes you'll be surprised i think or maybe not maybe you'll have guessed it you know what a good guesser i am chloe she laughed thinking of the game they had been playing not long before i'm going to be married soon in august i think kurt was too surprised to answer for a moment it would be roy carston of course he had wondered if it mightn't end that way his principal feeling for the moment was one of pique he had never thought of chloe or of any girl as other than a comrade but this unexpected news was a shock to his indifference it brought home to him the brief statement of hers and the minute of silence that followed it her peculiar value as a friend she supplied in some measure what Derry failed to supply but that was foolish she would marry of course and roy wasn't a bad sort you are surprised her voice cut into his confusion yes i am chloe i didn't know should have i suppose i'd like to tell you about it if you don't mind her inflection asked his permission do it's strange she spoke slowly it's strange i'm not sure i love roy but he loves me i think and kurt i'd do anything to get away roy's got a job in detroit advertising and it will get me away from mother you're shocked at that i think i know chloe in swift parade marched pictures of the last few months chloe obviously interested in roy carston mrs grayling opposing her querulously disliking roy saying cutting things about him on all occasions chloe rebellious at her mother's domination mrs grayling making melodrama of her rebellion it was a case between the two women of temperaments too similar in some respects too different in others ever to understand chloe's calm insistence on her right to love and marry whom she chose exasperated mrs grayling and she revenged herself by being consistently unpleasant when roy or his affairs came up for discussion am i wrong kurt to do it gee chloe i don't know your mother has been unreasonable about roy 
and he's a good chap. You oughtn't you? He was embarrassed and stopped awkwardly. Then he plunged ahead. Oughtn't you to be sure you love him, or am I just old-fashioned? She laughed a bit, softly. Funny boy, you're right, of course, and I suppose I do. But, oh, more than anything else, it's a chance to get away, and I must get away, must. I hope you'll be awfully happy, Chloe. You know that, I guess. Then he added, because he couldn't help doing so, and I hope being married and all won't keep you from writing to me once in a while. I guess I've been counting on that. You've been so sympathetic, always, with me, the real me, inside, that does the things you think may mean something, some day. Derry likes me, too, but he, well, you know Derry and his letters. She took his hand again, pressed it, took it suddenly to her lips, and then was gone into the house. He hardly understood that. He was glad that she was going to get away. She was too young, too full of promising things to be so submerged and defeated. Roy didn't seem her type, though, and he was afraid they might be unhappy. It was a little sadly that he sat in the swing, waiting for Derry's return. End of Part 2, Chapter 2